Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I am a big fan of Johnny Cash. I just find his story to be super compelling. He reached fame. He struggled with drugs and relationships and ultimately found a deep faith that really anchored him. Towards the end of his life, he recorded a number of cover songs. And one of those songs that he covered was called Hurt, which was initially performed by a band called Nine Inch Nails. And there's this really hauntingly beautiful line in the song where he says, what have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end, and you could have it all, my empire of dirt. In light of all his successes, he realized that even his important achievements paled in comparison to what really mattered. Cash had spent a lot of time building his own empire, an empire he came to realize was an empire of dirt, or what we might call a city of man. And it took him a long time to realize what's truly important, the city of God. Now, St. Augustine wrote a book in the 300s called The City of God, in which he contrasts the city of God over and against the city of man. The city of man finds its start all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. While God had established a perfect place for humanity to dwell, the Garden of Eden, The city of man represents the efforts of humanity to set themselves up over and against God. The city of man began when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, insisting that they knew a better way than that which God had provided for them. They wanted to be gods. They wanted power. And we see the same story continue after Cain committed the sin of fratricide. You know what one of the first things the scriptures tell us Cain did after he killed his brother was? He went and built his own city. The city of man continues then into chapter 11 of Genesis, where the people of earth, empowered by the technological advancement of the brick and united in speaking only one language, banded together and decided to build a city with a tower to the heavens. Most likely, this was not a tower literally built so high that it reached to heaven, a common image in children's Bibles, but a temple that was dedicated to worshiping the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the very things that God created just 10 chapters earlier in the book of Genesis. Now, the stated purpose of the builders of Babel in Genesis 11 was to ensure that they were so centralized that there was no way that they could be scattered across the face of the earth. And also, they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's important. Remember that. They wanted to make a name for themselves. God, of course, saw their plans, and as a judgment of their hubris came down and confused their languages, thereby scattering them over the face of the earth. Their plan backfired. Now, an important thing to point out about the story initially is that it assumes that the unity of humanity is our natural state. It's what we were made for. We weren't made to be so separated from each other. We were made to be unified. As St. Paul says to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. So we should understand division not as a natural human phenomenon, but as a form of God's judgment. 
And like most judgment, if it doesn't produce repentance, part of the ongoing implication or consequence of the judgment is that it exacerbates the problem. So these divisions, which were purely accidental based on language and ethnicity, etc., often became viewed as ultimate barriers between people, allowing us to think in terms of us versus them. Now, on the one hand, you might say this frustrates the project of the city of man, and that's true. But on the other, what happens is that each tribe, each people group, each culture, each nation tries to construct their own version of the city of man, often in competition over and against other tribes and cultures and nations. But what the story really points to at Babel is that as humans, we have a tendency to build Babels. To build these cities, we have to discard the inherent meaning that God has placed in the world, has placed in our lives. And what do we replace that loss of meaning with? Well, we're told that we need to make our own meaning in the world. But ultimately, in replacing God and getting rid of him, we reap only chaos and confusion just like the builders of Babel discovered. Now, ultimately, the sin of Adam and Eve is the sin of Babel. It's that striving for autonomy. It's the creature pretending that they're God. It's the falling prey to satanic false promises that play on our fleshly desires. Babel reveals the ultimate futility of the human attempt to do it without God, the dire consequences of trying to supplant our creator by putting ourselves in his place. And of course, we haven't let the fact that this continually fails stop us from trying it again and again and again. But today is the Feast of Pentecost. So what in the world does all this talk about Babel and the city of man have to do with the events in Acts chapter 2? I would argue it has everything to do with the events in Acts chapter 2 because Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. It is the beginning of the undoing of the city of man. So in our reading this morning, the disciples, were told, were gathered together on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish feast that also went by the name the Feast of Weeks. It was observed 50 days after the Passover, hence the name Pentecost, and it was celebrated the harvest of wheat. Also, according to Orthodox rabbinical tradition, it's considered the date that Moses would have received the Torah from God at Mount Sinai. This was a pilgrimage festival, kind of like Passover, meaning that many Jews would travel from all sorts of foreign places to Jerusalem in order to observe the feast. This is why in Acts chapter 2, there are so many people of different nationalities who speak different languages around, uh, languages and nationalities that Gary pronounced nobly, I think, today in the reading. So Luke tells us that there's this sound from heaven and a rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire descend on the heads of the apostles. This should immediately make us think of Israel's exodus from Egypt, where God led the people out by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. God is here leading his church into a new phase of salvation history. Now, some have said that Pentecost is the birth of the church, and there's a sense in which that's true, though I think that the more precise birthing of the church happened on the cross with the blood and the water that flowed from Jesus' side. But Pentecost does represent a sort of exodus of the church, but it's in the reverse order of what happened at the original exodus of Israel. Because in the original exodus, Israel was led out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. But here what we see is that the church begins in Jerusalem, inside the walls of the city, 
And because of the events of the day, it's taken outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, into all the world. So God leads his faithful people out of the city into the world. Pentecost, then, is a new kind of Mount Sinai, and we can think of it as the feast of the new covenant. And how does this express itself? How is the gospel promulgated to those who aren't from Jerusalem? Well, the apostles spoke in tongues, not so-called heavenly prayer languages, but actual human languages, so that those who were present could understand them in their own tongues. And what is it that they were saying to these foreigners? Well, the crowds tell us at the end of the reading that the apostles were uttering the wonderful works of God. In other words, they were preaching Christ crucified to these crowds so that, the pre- so that those present could hear the gospel in their own languages. This, of course, astounds the audience who begin to marvel at how they could understand what these Galileans were saying. Now, what's excluded from our reading, it's the very next verse, if you keep going uh, from where the reading cuts off, is that there are three reactions in the crowd. Some of the crowd was amazed, which is evidenced by the fact that 3,000 people end up being baptized that day after Peter preaches a sermon. Others doubted that it was a sign. And finally, a third group started mocking the disciples, saying that they were drunk with wine. Now, I don't know about you, I have never started speaking Swahili, French, or German after a couple glasses of wine, so it must have been really strong stuff. But the point is this, Pentecost is the new Sinai. It is the ground zero for the church to begin realizing and fulfilling its mission, which was given by our Lord at the Great Commission, that we would go out into all the world, to all nations, and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But on an even even deeper level, the church in its proclamation of the gospel and in the administration of the sacrament invites the world into something better than the city of man that they've been busily constructing for centuries now. When we do it on our own, we get the same results as Babel. We get division and we get confusion. The church offers us a better way. We don't have to make up our own meaning as we go. We don't have to take the position of our creator. We don't have to be the masters of our own fates. And notice what happens. When we submit to the Holy Ghost, we're healed of these wounds. Because where confusion reigned, the Holy Ghost comes and brings communion. He brings commonality. Where division and hostility were normal, The Holy Ghost works on bridging the gap, not only between heaven and earth, but also between peoples. And so on this day of Pentecost, where we remember the Holy Ghost coming into the church, bestowing it with gifts, we should spend time in prayer, prayer that that same Holy Ghost would help us accomplish the mission of the church today, which is to usher people into a city, not that city of man with all of its striving and autonomy and strife, but to the city of God where people experience life in a way that leads to their ultimate flourishing. Because when we understand that our job is not to create meaning, but rather to discover the meaning that God has implanted into our world and into our lives, then we can understand that we have an ultimate dependence on him. And so the goal is not to make a name for ourselves, like it was for the builders of Babel, but rather by the empowerment of the Holy Ghost to take the name of our Lord into all the corners of the earth. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.